This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson. Yes! Welcome everybody to another episode of Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys, Romero Carlson and their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, going solo once again, but NBD, no big deal, because I've got a really special guest to talk about the New York Islanders today. His name is Arthur Staple. You know him. I don't know if you like his name is. He is a very well-renowned beat writer that knows a ton about this team. And we had a really great interview. I think you are going to enjoy it. Uh, before I cut to that, of course, let me mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It's the number one fantasy hockey website in the world. And they keep dropping articles just like Arthur does on The Athletic. Dauber does over at Dauber Hockey and his great team. And so definitely check out everything that's going on there. And I use all of their tools at Frozen Tools to prep all of these interviews. So definitely very proud to be presented by DauberHockey.com. But okay, with that, how about no more preamble? Check it out, my interview with Arthur Staple. Okay, everybody, really excited for this next beat writer interview that we're going to be bringing you. I've got a pro for you. He's spent 20 years at Newsday, where he covered everything in the world, and he's been the New York Islanders beat writer for the last seven seasons. From The Athletic, Arthur Staple. Welcome to the show, and thanks for coming, Arthur. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. I'm very interested to ask you a couple of questions, and by a couple, I mean as many as we can get to before you have to go, about this Islanders team that seems to have gone through such a transformation over these past couple of seasons since John Tavares left. Like, that season, like, going into that season, 2017-18, when they still had Tavares, it, it wasn't a good season, right? And even though they, you know, had Matt Barzell coming out of nowhere and emerging into, like, a superstar, they acquired Jordan Eberle for that season still, they finished with a 35, 37, and 10 record, like well out of playoff contention. And interestingly, compared to, you know, what we see with the Islanders now, they were good offensively. They ranked eighth in the league in goals, but were one of the worst teams in the league in terms of save percentage with their tandem of Halak and Grice. Uh, so that was the team with John Tavares. So obviously we didn't have high hopes when Tavares left, but uh, the Pens then crushed it the next year. Obviously, Barry Trotz came in, changed the system up, and all of a sudden, they make the playoffs, they sweep the Penguins in the first round, and in that season, they didn't score that many goals. They ranked 22nd in goals, but they were first in save percentage. And now, going into this season, things were looking great as well at the start, right? They, they switched out their goalie tandem uh, once again. They switched Leonard 
for Varlamov, uh, but they still had Thomas Grace. Anyways, they started the year at the top of the league. They were 16-3-1 through November 21st. But then, I guess a switch flipped. Uh, losses started to pile up. And now going into the pause, the Islanders actually set a point out of the wild card and were in the midst of a seven-game losing streak. Uh, so the two questions I've been really curious to get the answers to to get things started are, first of all, like how did this team turn from being an offensive force with like defensive holes to being such a stingy, low-scoring team all in the span of one season? Like, Is it as simple as giving all the credit to Barry Trotz? And then I guess once you answer that, my second question is like, what happened this season where they started so strongly and then things sort of fell off? But first, I'd love to know, like, how did this change happen in such a short amount of time? I think you hit it the nail on the head there. Barry Trotz, you know, I think even subtracting Tavares from the equation, this was a team that had a lot of guys that had been here for a long time, a lot of, you know, core guys who'd been here for many years and really had only served under one general manager in Garth Snow and played for Jack Capuano and then Doug Waite, who had been an assistant under Capuano for a long time. So similar system, similar ideas that were being communicated. And then all that gets blown up in the space of a couple of months after that 17-18 season. Lou Lamarillo comes in as team president. He dismisses Garth Snow. He dismisses Doug Waite, brings in Barry Trotz. They lose Tavares. All this stuff is happening in a very short space of time. But uh, but I think Trotz, even in the quick transition from winning a Stanley Cup with the Capitals to taking over the Islanders, understood what the fundamental need of this Islander team was, which was to have some confidence in itself that you know they weren't uh, a laughingstock because Tavares chose to leave. They weren't the team that had given up the most goals, I think, in a decade in the NHL the year before. Because it really was the same cast of characters, pretty much. At, you subtract Tavares, you bring in Robin Leonard, um, you subtract Halak, subtract Calvin DeHaan. And really, outside of that, it was the same group, especially the same group of defensemen. So um, I think it was really having a coach like Trotz. You know, you go back to the days of even Al Arbor. He wasn't, the co- he wasn't Al Arbor before he became the Islanders coach in the 70s. He kind of built up his reputation winning all those Stanley Cups. The Islanders have never brought in a coach like Barry Trotz, and certainly not for a long, long time, um, due to a lot of ownership. Uh, stinginess and just sort of stubbornness about bringing in such a big name coach. And Lou Lamarillo went for it. He brought this guy in who Barry Trotz brought in his people, Lane Lambert, who, uh, you know, coaches the penalty kill, Mitch Korn, uh, who coaches the goalies. So a a group of people that he was familiar with and they knew what they needed to do. Uh, And the fact that they accomplished it so quickly into the previous season in 1819, maybe was the biggest surprise that everyone was so, uh, so eager to adapt to the system, even a guy like you mentioned, like Matthew Barzal is coming off a Calder trophy in that 17, 18 season where they played such a wide open style that really suited his skills uh, to get him to buy into that system was a big ask. And I think the fact that he did it and it showed some success was really key for what they have going forward. Um, but it was the, it was the buy-in and it was Barry Trotz delivering that message. I think that made the biggest difference in that big turnaround and, 2018-19 and I think you fast forward to this season um, you know and they had a 17 game point streak where they went 15-0-2 in that first couple months of the year and really um, a little bit of it was smoke and mirrors they were winning games in, in all kinds of different fashion uh, a lot of overtime a lot of shootouts but you still got to pile up the points and it still meant a lot um, but I think once you got through that stretch and they started to break down a little bit physically lost some of their their core guys, the, their identity guys, like Cal Clutterbuck uh, with a skate cut for almost three months. In case right. also a skate cut. Adam Pellick was a huge loss. Torres Achilles uh, playing two-touch soccer before a game just after New Year's. 
these are guys that, that a lot of people around the league don't know or don't care to know, but they're important to what the Islanders do. And I think um, if you can point out a failing uh, transitioning from the Gar Snow era to the Lula Amarillo era, it's, it's really the inability to shore up their professional depth. They have some good young prospects coming up through the AHL and maybe up through the amateur ranks, but they don't have a lot of eight, nine, ten guys on defense that you can really plug right in. Uh, and some of them were hurt. Even you know they have a they have a veteran NHLer in Thomas Hickey who could have stepped right in for Pellick, but he was out injured as well in January. And up front they have you know they just don't have the guys like Clutterbuck and Sezikis to really anchor what they need to be doing. And I think they got away from a, a little bit of what their identity had been uh, in the year and a half under Trotz before all these injuries hit in December and January. Um, and there were just some details that were slipping. I think they were giving up more goals than they should have at key times. Not still not scoring enough, um, and just not being as tight in their own zone as they had been, and tight on the forecheck as they had been. So, kind of bit by bit after that November twenty first date that you pointed out, they just kind of took a few steps back. And I think their division is, you know, has certainly proven over the last couple of years to be one of the best ones, if right. not the best one in the league. With Columbus withstanding the loss of all those guys, the Rangers maybe turning it around a little faster than everyone thought. Uh, Carolina still maintaining that high level and the other, you know, in Philly really with Alan Vigneault, um, putting a lot of good things together this year. So it's, it's a combination of a couple of those factors, uh, that have kind of put them where they are. And I imagine that whatever sort of playoff system they come out of this pause with, the Islanders will be involved and they'll be healthy, but so will everybody else. So I'm curious to see what sort of hockey they put on the ice after all these months away. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like I mentioned, the seven game losing streak that they had going into the pause, five of those losses were one goal games or like overtime losses. So it's not as if they were falling apart. Maybe just some luck was going in the other direction. It's interesting because, you know, we're a fantasy hockey podcast, namely. So we're talking about the guys who who put up a lot of points. So maybe I didn't notice, you know, like when we talked about San Jose or, or Columbus, you know, those were big names that were getting injured. But here you're talking about like Pelex, Zekas, Clutterbuck, Hickey. Like I didn't realize that the Islanders were also suffering from all these injuries. But yeah, that makes <laughs> The difference uh but okay you mentioned matt barzell and i'd love to find out what you think about him at this point because yeah it's not a super high scoring team anymore but they do have this at least one elite offensive talent in barzell and that rookie season in 1718 i don't know if people realize how amazing of a rookie season that was he put up 85 points in 82 games as a 20 year old and i was looking into other rookie seasons from the past you know 20 30 years or so like since 95 there's only three rookies that have put up 85 or more points aside from barzell and those are Crosby, Ovechkin, and Malkin. So right. some some pretty good names. That was a, a fantastic season. The next highest since 95 is, is Paul Stasny, actually, 78 points. Uh, so yeah, Tavares left in the summer of 2018. And the big question we were like contemplating all that offseason was, is Barzal going to still be the same guy, even with Tavares not on the team? Now he's going to face the toughest competition. And like I guess the answer turned out to be no. Like He fell from 85 points to 62 in 18-19. But you know, like you've brought up like it was a whole different system so I don't know if it's like if anything you're saying it was like a credit to Barzell to change his game and now this past season he seemed to be taking a step back towards that rookie output he had uh, 60 points in 68 games it's a 72 point pace so now like looking into next season do you think Barzell like has the ability to be a over point per game guy like he was in his rookie season under this Barry Trotz coach team or do you think like around 70 points is probably what we should be expecting for the foreseeable future I think he can be a point per game guy again. Um, you know, I think a lot of the failing last season, eighteen nineteen, was their power play was you know a fourteen percent power play all year long, and and I you know he is a 
dynamic player. He's not, I think certainly in 1819, he had to, he was learning a lot of things about away from the puck, all the coaching cliches, 200 foot game, being the number one center, having to adapt, like you said, to facing everybody's top D pair and, and maybe top checking lines, uh, being more of the focus with Tavares gone. But I think this past season and this you know, the current season, rather, um, he he kind of had it in his mind early on to shoot a little bit more, um, to be to to keep his opponents guessing, you know. And I think uh, the biggest key for him, and I think it's the biggest uh, weakness of this team, is not having an elite scoring winger. You know, they made a big push to to try to sign Artemi Panarin. He ended up going to their rivals for less yeah. money. Um, but I think Lou Lamarillo certainly understands that uh, that they need more scoring up, more scoring punch from their wings in their top six, top nine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and really, the, the the function of that is you need a guy who can put the puck in the net when Matthew Barzell makes the plays to get somebody the puck. You know, he's he does play with guys uh, primarily Anders Lee and Jordan Everly who have been big scorers in the past. Um, they've not been big scorers playing with him other than, uh, you know, a stretch at the end of 18, 19 and into the playoffs when he and Jordan Everly were on fire together in that series against the Penguins. Um, but they haven't really made it click for consistent enough times during the regular season. And whether that's a function of Barry Trotz's system and trying to adapt to that or uh, a power play that still isn't, isn't really dynamic enough to, to overcome not having a guy like Tavares who is such a was always such so puck hungry and and willing to do whatever it takes to get the puck in the net um I think having a guy like that really takes a lot of heat off of guys like Barzal um but I think really the the biggest factor for Barzal is he needs a guy who's who's a very consistent scorer and there's you know um at the trade deadline, there was a, a near miss on a trade for Zach Parise, who's not exactly in the prime of his career anymore, but is still a guy who is, is uh, you know, a very straightforward player, uh, a guy who still has a lot of skill in putting the puck in the net. And I think, you know, it, whatever kind of offseason we get to after this 1920 season resolves and whatever kind of season we're looking at for 2021, obviously salary cap is going to be a huge issue with whatever the financial situation of the league is. Um, whether there's amnesty buyouts or not, I think the priority still for the Islanders is to find a guy who is a, you know, is a no conscience shooter. And they have a young guy in Oliver Wallstrom who could fill that role playing with Barzal. I don't know if he's ready for it at age 20, but, uh, but Barzal, I think, you know, and going into a, a contract uh, off season as a restricted free agent, I think it's a big consideration for him to say, if I'm going to commit here for five, six, seven, maybe even eight years, I got to know that there's somebody riding shotgun with me that's going to score 35 or 40 to get me my 50 or 60 assists that I know I can get because I've done it already. So it's, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of considerations. And and like you said, he is the only bona fide star that they have. So they want to keep him happy. They want to keep him at that number one center spot because um, who they've got now uh, at center is, is as formidable a, f- a group of four as anybody in the East. Uh, with Barzal, with Brock Nelson, with Jean Gabriel Pajot, with Casey Sizikis, and I think you want to keep that group together and uh, and keep keep your star happy, even if it's not a star driven system. You know, they I think they want Barzal to be happy, and he's happiest putting up points and and leading his team. Right, of course. I'm kind of getting deja vu here. Isn't that the same story that with John Tavares, where he wanted yeah. to be convinced that they were going to bring in good people for him? 
Yeah, I mean, it's different, you know, unrestricted versus restricted. Yeah. So I think there's there's obviously different considerations. But I think for Tavares, it was so much bleaker when he was kind of at that at that 21, 22, the end of his entry level deal, going to a second contract. He didn't he didn't bat an eye signing a, a six year deal out of that out of that entry level deal. Um, but you know, other than you know, he had guys like Matt Molson, PA Parento, who were you know had great seasons playing alongside him, but were not even of the caliber of Anders Lee, Jordan Everly, Josh Bailey. The guys that they have um, on the wings now are a step above that. I think that was you know those were those were the bad old days of the Islanders when they really cheaped out on on some of their non star players. Um, now that's not Lou Lamarillo's uh, you know mo and. Uh, you know, he did, he did take great pains and spend a lot of money to, to re-sign Anders Lee and re-sign Jordan Everly to long-term contracts last off season. Um, and it's fair to wonder if those are guys that are really number one line wingers. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about both those guys as we go on in the show, but, um, it, it is interesting to see as as the star players in the league get younger and younger when you've got your your two top line wingers or or you know Jordan Everly just turned 30 and Anders Lee will be 30 in the in the summer um can they keep up with the way the league is going to go and they keep up with a guy like Barzell who always seems to be four or five moves ahead of everybody else um i wonder if if the priority uh however they can manage it is to get somebody in the off season, whether trade, free agency, whatever they can come up with, a young guy who's going to grow alongside Barzal and be that one-two punch that they really need. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you've brought up so many players that I plan to ask about. So I guess we could just take them one by one. But yeah, Anders Lee is interesting because that last season with Tavares, that was a great season for Anders Lee. He put up 40 goals, 61 points. The previous year, he had 34 goals. So he looked like he was emerging as like this great one-two punch type of player, like a top 10, 15 goal scorer in the league. But I guess just like Barzal, he's fallen off like in terms of his total points and goals uh, over the last couple of seasons, like he only managed 28 goals in 2018, 19. And then he was only pacing for around 24 goals this current season. Uh, So like, is it fair to say it kind of seems like that's what you might be saying, or maybe it's just because he's getting older now, but like was what we saw from Lee in those final two seasons with Tavares, like a bit of a mirage, you know, playing with such a great player and maybe this 25, 30 goal, 50, 55 point guy, like that's more of what we should be expecting moving forward. Or like, cause I would think maybe the counterpoint could be like once Barzal, like who's still, I guess on the rise, if he like takes a step forward, maybe he could like bring Anders Lee along with him to get into 40 goals. But I guess that depends on if he stays as his winger. Yeah. You know, I think, I think Lee, the, the style that he plays and I, you know, you, there's other little factors that go into it. Uh, you know, when Tavares left, Lee was named captain at the beginning of the 1819 season. I think that, you know, and, and Anders Lee, you know, has been a captain at, at pretty much every level of hockey that he's played at Notre Dame in high school. Um, he's the kind of natural leader that guys follow. And I think with this team, his responsibilities are obviously want to score goals, but I think there's a lot more to his game now than there maybe was when, when Tavares was here. And really, I think the styles that Tavares and Barzell play kind of highlight why we haven't seen Lee, you know, and really he was a, he's a premier power play player. He's kind of that net front guy that, that deposits a lot of garbage and, and, you know, tips pucks. And, and I think the personnel that they had in those two seasons, his big scoring seasons when he he had a lot of power play goals in both those years. um, You know, when you've got a guy like Tavares on the off wing circle, 
he's such a dual threat. He's such a good passer and such a good shooter that there's a lot of, that creates a lot of room. And really these, this last year plus there hasn't been that guy to, to really be the one that, that teams have to pay attention to um, that frees up a lot of space in, in, in kind of that, uh, that, uh, that Anders Lee office area right in front of the opposing net. Um, they don't really have a, a big shooter. They do have Ryan Pollock, but he's not really that adept power play player. He's not, someone like a, a Shea Weber or Brent Burns whose shot is always going to is hard and always gets through and creates a lot of havoc in front of the net. Um, so there's a few little things that kind of chip away at, at, at your expected goal total, I think for a guy like Lee. Um, but I think the biggest difference is Tavares, you know, that Tavares and Lee played a very similar kind of bull rush style. You know, I think when you think of Tavares, you think of maybe the most ungainly superstar in the league, a guy mm-hmm. who just like, a force of will type guy where he goes into the corner and comes out with the puck. He's certainly got a high level skill, but he's not the flashiest player in the league. And Barzal is a flashy guy. And I think that it takes a special kind of player to be able to adapt to him and understand what his mindset is. And Lee is a very meat and potatoes type of guy. You know, I think um, they've had some good connections over the last year plus. And uh, I think you even just go back to that playoff series against Pittsburgh where the connection, the real chemistry of that line was was Barzal and Eberle. You know that that was the that you can't even say the whole line was what killed the Penguins. It was those two guys. You know, Lee I think had one empty net goal in eight playoff games, and that was really it. Um, he played a key role, but I think when you talk about dynamic offense, you don't really think of him uh, in that way. And I think also just like I said, he turns thirty soon. It's a lot of mileage. It's a lot of cross checks in the back when you're standing right in front of the net. Um, you know, that, that's one area of the game that I always talk to him about that, you know, they've kind of cracked down on hooking and holding and some of these other areas of the game hits from behind, but you can still take 10 or 12 whacks at a guy standing in front of the net and nothing gets called. And that I assume takes a toll on a guy as you get older and, and as he's getting into his fifth or fifth or sixth NHL year. So I think there's, there's a few factors, but, um, but yeah, you know, I think that to see it drop off as quickly as it did, and really, like you said, you know, 28 goals last year may seem like a disappointment, but he still was the team leader in goals by right. the amount. Uh, this year, I think, you know, with Brock Nelson kind of stepping forward a little bit more, Barzal being a little bit more scoring-minded, um, it, it highlights that Lee, uh, you know, still needs to be that guy. You know, signing a seven-year deal uh, at seven million per is, is a big chunk of change and this is year one of that deal so uh, if you're going to be a, a 20 to 25 goal guy uh, you got to be able to do a lot more I think offensively than than what Anders can offer um, and turning 30 I don't know if there's a lot of tricks left in the bag there but uh, but I think again if you think about a guy like a Panarin like a Taylor Hall, if you were able to to somehow get a guy like Taylor Hall in your lineup and kind of shuffle things appropriately, uh, you know, Lee and Brock Nelson have had a lot of good chemistry together over the years. I think they kind of, when they both first burst on the scene about five or six years ago, it was as line mates. And I've always kind of felt like that would be a line. Nelson is a, is a real shooter, a volume shooter. I think that's the kind of center that, that Lee will work better with as the years go on. So maybe that, you know, if they do... Uh, hit the jackpot and find that number one left wing, then Anders Lee maybe finds the spot where he can be, go back to being uh, an elite scorer. 
Wow. Like I just imagining Taylor Hall and Barzell on a line together. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the wish list guy. I would imagine who you can't even begin to think about that stuff because of all the financial right. uh, unknowns. But, uh, but if you're thinking about someone that you want to have on your top line playing with Matthew Barzell, I guess you could do worse than coming up with him. Well, uh, are he and Jordan Everly still in touch? Maybe <laughs> Everly could give him a call. Friends. Yeah, that's true. Okay, <laughs> maybe we can make something happen. But uh, in the meantime, I guess you brought up Brock Nelson. And like, I was thinking after Barzal, there really is kind of like this horizontal landscape in terms of, you know, like expected point production, I guess, from, from the top six on the Islanders. Like, it's hard for me to peg who's the, like, who's the second best? Who's going to come second in Islander scoring next season? Though This past season, it was far and away Brock Nelson. Like he already had a great season, 2018-19, like the first one where he became that number two center. He had a 53-point breakout. And then this past season, he was doing even better. He was already at 54 points in only 68 games. So that's a 65-point pace if they would have gone the whole way. And like, I'm just curious to know, like, Oh, something in my head makes me think like, how could this be what Brock Nelson is? Like, because he's been around for so long and he's never been like a big deal guy offensively. But of course, it's easy to understand what he was only seeing like less than 16 minutes a game. And he was in the bottom six for like those five seasons he played with Tavares on the team. And then in 1819, he was up to 18 minutes this season. He was around 19 minutes per game on average. And also like it's impressive how he had so many even strength points, like his 54 points that he scored, only seven came on the power play. The rest were at even strength. So like, I don't know, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around Brock Nelson, like projecting him as like a 60 plus point guy next season, but I don't see any reason why not. So am I just kind of like living in the past and I just need to get with the program? He is one guy that, that has really uh, thrived offensively under Barry Trotz. And I think it's, I think it has a lot to do with the role that he's, he's kind of been given or earned uh, or a little bit of both. You know, last year, it was a, you know, he's playing on a one-year deal. Um, and I think Barry Trotz kind of approached him and said, look, you're, you're my guy as a number two center. And really, most of the year, he was the number one center because they were still trying to kind of tame the wild horse that Barzal was. Uh, so Nelson really was the most, most used guy at even strength, most uh, dependable. He w- worked in some, some more penalty killing, which he'd done a little bit of in years past, but not very much. And uh, and he too against the Penguins really had a, a tremendous series and, and carried it over. I think he was probably uh, probably the most consistent forward through all all of their playoff games last year. Uh, and the consistency factor for him was always the biggest the biggest issue. You know, I think under Jack Capuano, who tried him a lot more on the wing than at center. You know, they had Tavares, they had Franz Nielsen, and I think they didn't see him as someone who could who could kind of supplant. Nielsen as the number two center, even though in an ideal world, him being Nelson as number two and Franz Nielsen as number three was really where they envisioned those, those top nine forwards. Um, but, you know, Nelson was always kind of a streaky, streaky guy. You know, he, uh, Brocktober is the big hashtag with him where he would have these great first months of the season and then disappear for 20 or 30 games. Uh, and really the, you know, the, just to get to that consistent level last year was such a big accomplishment, even though the numbers weren't huge. I think for him they were because it was it was fairly spread out throughout the year, and then this year got off to another good start. And really, the the hallmark of his importance to the team was how many you know I think he had three or four overtime winners this season. He had two six on five tying goals in the last minute of the third period uh, in the last couple months. It's a guy who's just was feeling it uh, and the and just you know being put in position to score right time, right place and, and converted a lot. And, uh, you know, I think the, the deal that he signed, he was the first of their free agents to sign last off season, uh, the six year deal he signed. 
is going to turn out to be a big a big bargain because he does a lot of things even off, off of the score sheet that they like and uh and having him be that that kind of very dependable guy behind Barzal allows them to mix and match a little bit with those top four top two line wingers who are fairly interchangeable and they you know can try to get people going uh, you know I think if you're that kind of guy like Nelson is and I hearken back I've covered the Islander team a long time he is he is developing into a bit of a Franz Nielsen type of guy, maybe a little bit more offensive skill, but a guy who can just say, well, this guy isn't going very well as a winger. Let's put him with Nelson, and that'll that'll help mm-hmm. straighten him out a little bit. And I think uh, that's a real credit to Nelson and, and what he's done with his career kind of laid into it um, and uh, and how he's thrived in a system that doesn't necessarily reward a lot of taking chances and offensive skill, but but he's made it work. And like you said, with very, very little power play time too, it's, uh, you know, he arguably he's their most important top six player and, uh, and he's being paid like one now and he's still playing like one. That's great. Yeah. It'll be really fun to see what happens over these next few seasons with Nelson. Now he's like entrenched, I guess, is this number two center. And like you say, if they can make a big signing of a top line winger, then, you know, that, that means the next best wingers fall to Nelson. So exactly. Things could be great for him. I guess the other winger that you've brought up that I'd love to chat about is Jordan Eberly, And he's kind of jumping out at me right now as maybe like a sleeper for next season, just because I'm curious to know if you'll agree or not, or you'll tell me that like, I got to get over Everly. Like my co-host for this show, Brian is like, loves Jordan Everly. Like <laughs> he's always been like, it's coming. You'll see. Cause you'll have, I guess a couple great years on the Oilers, but uh, yeah, this season, Eberly had 40 points in 58 games. That's pretty solid, like a 57-point pace. Definitely beat his dreadful 37 points in 2018-19. But I looked into the splits, and it looks like something must have switched with the way Trotz was using Eberly because Eberly started the year playing around 16 minutes per game on average. And I saw there were some like 13- and 14-minute games, maybe a couple 17-minute games. But then around mid-January, he was jumping to around 18-plus minutes in most games and then like from mid-february to the end he was consistently seeing over 20 minutes per game so that deployment really changed and he responded to the improved deployment really well he ended the season with 23 points in his final 27 games so that's like a 70 point pace if you stretch that out over a full season so like what do you think happened to trigger trots to start giving eberly so much extra time and like do you think this will hold for next year and then if it does i guess now i'm asking too many questions like but i'm just wondering is this for real like could this be what we see from eberly moving forward or do you think this was like a one-time thing and he'll go back to those like 15 16 minute games you know it's interesting I, well i mean early in the year he he did have a he missed pretty much uh, a, a decent portion of that 17 game win streak with uh, with a knee injury i think he was out for three weeks so that kind of accounts for his the 10 game absence that he right. had uh so i think part of it was building back up you know, uh, energy wise to, to be a more consistent contributor and be out there a little bit more. But I think too, you know, as they got deeper into the season, um, you know, without Sezikis, without Clutterbuck, uh, kind of having to, you know, not have that full four line rotation that Trotz really likes to have. Uh, he was relying a lot more on that top line. And I think he felt like, you know, Everly's a, a responsible enough guy and, and, you know, Barzal had kind of earned the the trust factor to put them out a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I think he, he was the one that maybe took the biggest step forward offensively in terms of rewarding what Trotz was, was handing out. Um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely been a bit streakier than you would have thought. You know, he had a very good 17, 18 as a lot of their top guys did offensively. Not much to speak about the rest of the, the, the rest of the time you're on the ice with the, the record that they had and the goals that they gave up. 
Um, but it was certainly fascinating in 1819, a contract year for him, new coach, new general manager to see how much he struggled and really wonder, uh, you know, how, how they viewed him and whether they were going to make a big push to, to try to re-sign him just because, um, you know, he just wasn't producing and, it, you know, and then really caught fire in the last couple of weeks of the regular season. And obviously, uh, you know, scoring a goal in each of the four games against the Penguins uh, and some big ones too, you know, I think the Penguins scored, scored first in games three and four and, and within a couple of minutes, Everly scored to tie it. Uh, you know, that, that kind of scoring ability, I think coupled with not a lot of good right wings on the market and really not a lot of depth at that position in the organization. It's probably the weakest position uh, organizationally that, that they have, and they've had for a long time. Um, so I think a lot of those factors played in and they took a pretty reasonable deal for, you know, five years and five and a half million per, it's not a, not a bank breaker. Um, so I think, uh, I think he could be a guy who's a bit of a sleeper, you know, if they're looking for someone big to play on the other side with Barzal, Eberle's not really going to be affected by that. He's, I think they know that that if there's, you know, looking for combinations, Trotz always talks about it's not necessarily all three guys that you want to see have the great chemistry. You need at least two. You need some pairs on each line. And I think they view uh, Eberle and Barzal as, as attached to the hip. So if you're going to be attached to the hip to the guy who's got the most offensive potential on the team, uh, you might as well draft him late in the, in a fantasy yeah. draft just to sort of hang on to him and see what happens. Because like I said, if they, if they are able to get a more offensive guy on that top line on the left side with Barzal and with Everly, um, you know, I think trots coaches to the personality has, I think he knew that the, the cupboard was a little bit bare offensively when he came in, especially after Tavares left and they did what they had to do in terms of a, a system. You know, he certainly didn't coach the same system when he had, Alex Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom and all those guys in Washington. Um, so I think if they were to improve their offensive skill, he would he would change his system accordingly, and that would certainly open things up offensively for a guy like Everly. It's wild. Like Trotz just sounds like such a great coach at this point. Like he has a great reputation. Like to just change the way, like you said uh, when you asked my first question, the way that the personnel on the team didn't even change that much, and he changed this whole system, and he's able to adapt. It's it's very impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a reason he's lasted so long. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, before he went to his first, you know, when he first changed teams from Nashville to Washington, I think maybe people sort of had him pegged as this guy who was always going to coach, you know, kind of the bad news bears coach with that uh, a lack of talent uh, overachieving in Nashville all those years. But really, by the end, they had so many talented guys. He obviously had to change his, his style and really talking to him these last couple of years uh you know you think of him as a guy who's whatever he's fourth and wins all time and fifth in games coach so you think he's kind of a, a a stuck in the mud old guy and he he loves the new style of game and loves to adapt and take things from different guys and and i think uh i think you you certainly the the modern nhl game getting faster and younger you have to be able to adapt and uh the islanders have kind of done it in a different way being a little bit older and a little bit slower trying to slow things down but i think that's like i said a function of the personnel that he inherited and if they could change that personnel a bit i think he would change his outlook on what they need to do cool yeah (laughs) very impressive uh i guess now that you answer the question about jordan neverly maybe i'm not gonna peg him as such a big sleeper because you bring up a really good point that they had these injuries and so that's why he was getting more ice time maybe it wasn't necessarily because he like earned it he's gonna hold on to it once you know the sezikis and clutterbucks uh, are back on the team 
So I don't know. It'll be interesting to follow because like you say, on the the counterpoint is if he's playing with Barzell, then you should expect good things. Uh, okay, one more forward. Oh, there's so many players I want to ask you about. But like one name uh, that I wanted to ask about is Anthony Beauvillier, who in his fourth season in the league, he saw he also saw like a big bump in ice time this year, uh, over 17 minutes on average. And like Everly, he responded with he had 39 points in 68 games for a 47 point pace. And things were actually looking a lot better at one point for the future Mr. Anna Kendrick. Um, he was at 38 points through 60 games, and then he went cold right at the end, only one assist in his final eight games. So, like, his pace was looking even better until a cold stretch at the end. Uh, like, I remember a couple of years ago, like, we were looking at, I remember, like, before Barzal, like, broke out, we were kind of talking about Barzal and Beauvillier like, kind of, like, together as, like, the two, like, up-and-coming stars on the team. And obviously, it's gone a little differently for the two of them. But, like, do you think the upside is still there for Beauvillier to be, like, this big star on the team? Like, a 20, like, or do you think that he's more of, like, a middle sixer when we're looking at the long-term plans now and not, like, an emerging, you know, 70-plus point guy? Yeah, you know, I think it, it's kind of, it, it's still up in the air with him. You know, he has these flashes, uh, and certainly he's had them more in the last year or so. Um, you know, I think Nelson's emergence, uh, you know, kind of a key to them not really adding anybody to their top nine this past offseason was they needed Anthony Beauvillier to be a bona fide top six, top nine guy who could contribute a little bit on the power play, who could solidify one of those spots next to Barzal or next to Nelson. I think they, you know, they really, uh, it, it really only got the shot next to Nelson most of this year, but they were a really good tandem. Um, you know, Nelson scoring, like I said, I think it was three or four overtime winners this year. Bovillia had a couple of OT winners. I think they were, those two guys were really the, you know, when we talk about the the pairs as opposed to the trios, um, you know, I think Trot saw Beauvillier and Nelson as a as a pair pretty much the whole season long. There really weren't a lot of adjustments with that group. If you saw anybody new playing on that line, on the it was on the right side, of whether it was Josh Bailey, who was there most of the time. I think Leo Komarov got a little time there. But Beauvillier and Nelson has kind of been that second line, left wing center uh, certainty that you saw pretty much the whole season long. And, and that leads you to feel like uh, he could break out he could be a 25 30 goal guy you know Nelson is is a guy who is a shoot first guy and Bovillier does have some passing skills but um but it's an interesting combination because they're not you know both of them are are skilled more skilled at scoring than they are at distributing and uh um to see Bovillier always kind of get to the edge of being a guy you think like oh maybe he could be that 25 goal 25 assist guy and it's not quite happened yet in year four but uh, but I think he's getting closer, and I think um, you know there were certainly thoughts at times that he would be the guy to play with Barzal because they've they've had some chemistry and they're good friends. But um, but yeah, I think I think in a in an orderly top nine where you've got elite skill on the first line and then a little bit less so on the second, I think he's probably a second third line guy. And really um, going forward, since we don't really, we haven't really seen a whole lot of JG Pajot, uh to be that third line winger with Pajot would be to me really interesting to see what those two guys could do because Pajot, as we know um, when he's getting number one center minutes on a terrible team, like he was in Ottawa, he can certainly produce and has that skill. So I'm, I'm interested to see when the Islanders are healthy, uh, which they really haven't been since Pajot got here and what the team is going to look like into 2021 and beyond. If Beauvillier fits better, as a number two left wing and a guy who, you know, where you're willing to live with 
some 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 weak stretches like the one that he had before the pause, or if you want him to be more of a a, a worker B type guy that hmm. that kind of grinds out goals and assists, um, but also can contribute with a little skill because he's kind of physically a little bit similar to Pajot, and uh, I wonder if that could be, you know, the the Islander, the joke about the Islanders last season was that they had three fourth lines because they had so many guys that were not really high end skill, but I think it having a cornerstone of, of a third line with Pajo and then kind of the familiar fourth line, whether it's Martin still sticking around with Zizekas and Clutterbuck or somebody else on that, that wing with the fourth line to have two lines like that, that can put the puck in the net and forecheck the way that, that those, you know, those guys can. Um, I wonder where Bovillier fits. I don't know that it's set in stone yet. I'm, I'm curious to see where where the personnel ends up next season and uh and if we continue on or able to continue on with this season what he comes back with because like you said he does have these stretches where he still disappears from the score sheet and it's um you know when you get into that second contract that he's kind of in the middle of right now over 200 NHL games uh if you're going to be a top 6 guy you can't have those those 10 game stretches like he has Right. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that you bring up JJ Pajot as a potential like landing spot as a centerman for Beauvillier. I guess a lot of that depends on if they get like a Taylor Hall, then that obviously pushes some people down the lineup. Uh, So I think I know the answer to this. As far as Pajot goes, like you said, he had that great stretch with the Sens, 40 points in 60 games before going to the Islanders. But the Islanders aren't didn't bring him in to be like an offensive guy like that. He's going to be the third line center. So no one should be expecting Pajot to repeat what he did last season with Ottawa, like next season with the Islanders, right? No, but I I think the only way that you can, you can kind of bank on him fantasy wise and just in general is he does succeed on the power play and he's, he's got a good shot and he gets himself in a good position. And that's a way to pile up points on a, on a team that, doesn't you're not necessarily playing in the role you want to be you want to be in offensively five on five you know he had a power play goal I think in his second game with the Islanders in St. Louis um you know he was getting some power play one time with Barzal kind of in the in the bumper shooter spot at the top of the slot kind of the TJ Oshie spot um so I'm curious to see especially with the long layoff you know that Barry Trotz and Jim Hiller is assistant coach who runs the power play what they've been able maybe what they are able to come up with when they come out of the the pause um, in terms of a new look on the power play because it was still fumbling around in the you know in the in the eighteen percent range this year and and uh, for a team that plays so many one goal games and is so much on the razor's edge in terms of coin flip type games they need to have as good a power play as they can have and I think Pajot can add to that considering that they didn't they didn't bring in a, a big scorer at the trade deadline or they didn't they weren't able to land a guy like Panarin who can change your power play just by being out there. So I think that's a way for Pajot to kind of establish himself and, you know, and certainly he's locked up for a long time. So there's going to be, they're going to try to come up with some creative ways to get him on the ice because that's really where they feel like he's most useful is just being out there and integrated into the system. Um, You know, I don't think it's, you know, you never get traded at the trade deadline your first time you've been traded. I can't, it's hard to imagine a guy having an immediate impact. And certainly now, given that he got to play for two weeks and now they've been off for three months or however many more months we're going to be off. It's hard to see it happening this season. But next season, I'd be interested to see how they deploy him, who they put him with. Um, because guys like Leo Komarov uh, or Tom Kunakal aren't going to really maximize what he's going to give right. offensively at five on five. 
and whether they'll give him that power play time, especially on the top unit, to be able to to be able to produce. Because he, you, you bring in a guy who's got twenty five goals, you should probably want to use him in an offensive system, no matter where he's been playing before. To be able to do that in today's NHL is is uh, makes you something special. For sure. And the, the power play is like so interesting on the Islanders, like especially because like one of the guiding principles of like playing fantasy hockey for me has always been like you want to get like a defenseman who's quarterbacking a top power play because, you know, that person's going to be like a shoe in to get a bunch of points. But, like the Islanders have kind of been the exception to this rule for a while <laughs> lately. Like Nick Letty would get all the power play time, but like the past couple of seasons, like barely produce any points. Yeah. And and we've been waiting kind of forever for Ryan Pulak to take over because he seems to have a lot of offensive upside. But then this season, it was Devin Taves who kind of took the Nick Letty torch. And it looks like he got the majority of the top power play time with Barzell. And he only managed 28 points in 68 games. So kind of looks like another Letty situation. And meanwhile, Ryan Pulak, you know, he had a great season overall, 35 points in 68 games. That's so a 42 point pace. And eight of those points came from his like 40% of the Islanders power play time that he got. Uh, so it leaves me wondering like, what would happen if Ryan Pulak got on the top power play? And is there a chance that he'll ever get the reins? Like I'm kind of reminded of like Dougie Hamilton, who was stuck behind Justin Falk in Carolina. And then finally, this past season, he got a chance to run the top power play and he exploded. He was amazing. And I wonder if Pulak could have that in him or maybe am I just, you know, not seeing the full story here? You know, it's interesting that, you know, Letty obviously gives a lot of what you want as a kind of the 1D on the quarterback in the power play he can walk the line really well his his footwork is fantastic and he has a little bit of a shot and uh you know when he was the guy with Tavares and Lee uh as kind of the main forwards down low even with Barzal a lot of it ran through the point um that was kind of their their focus to you know he was a real whether he was distributing to guys who were going to shoot or just kind of getting things going towards the net and then in 1819, you know, they really ran a lot of it through Barzal off the half wall and uh it just it just didn't work very well. They weren't they weren't able to generate much. Not a lot ran through the point and um you know, kind of a lot of it broke down and Taves really Taves is kind of like a a bit younger version of Nick Letty where he he has incredible skating skills and incredible, you know, ability to to keep pucks in the zone uh but not the biggest shot and I you know, it, they tend to shy away from like kind of moving it through him very much. Uh, and it can be very stationary. Pollock obviously with the huge black, you know, ability to, to shoot the puck that he has, but not the best footwork. So you, you, you try to wonder, you know, if, if they've got a guy like Barzal, who's going to make plays that aren't, people aren't really ready for, do you want something that your one guy, your safety net at the point to be someone who's, who doesn't always have the foot speed mm. uh, to catch up to racing, penalty killers that are going off at the puck you probably want a guy more like Taves or more like Letty so I don't see a lot changing there the biggest consideration for me is you know they've got Noah Dobson who's uh, a good was a great power play player as an amateur and got a little bit of that time uh, in the games that he played they were really sheltering him quite a bit so his minutes were really low but if he's a guy who can emerge as a regular next season which you would think he would um, does he get a chance to kind of show what he can do as a power play player? He's got to show a lot more confidence with his feet and with his, with his passing ability. Um, but he's got the vision, uh, to be that kind of guy. So there's a few candidates. Uh, you, you also wonder if Nick Letty is going to be an Islander in the future. He's got a couple years left on his deal. Um, they're kind of, they're kind of overloaded on defense. And now, uh, as we've 
talked about, they need a top, they need a scoring wingers and they also need some, some cap relief depending on what's going to happen. So Letty could be a guy that they move out uh, just to get some salary off the books because they have a guy like Taves. So if I'm, if I was a, you know, forced to pick a couple of candidates to be that power play one quarterback for 2021, uh, you know, Taves would probably be my first choice. And then I, you know, I'd say Noah Dobson, you know, I, mm. you never know where he's going to end up or how the personnel is going to fall, but uh, he showed so many good flashes of his offense ability and his passing ability in the offensive zone that if he's in the lineup, he's going to get some power play time because that's really where he excels. So, I, you know, I don't know if he'll jump right into being a 30, 35 point guy next season, but I think he will be that kind of guy in a couple of years. So it's probably someone good to keep an eye on. Yeah, for sure. And and it's interesting to hear. Sounds like you're saying the organization is like happy with what they've seen from Dobson because I saw he was only playing around 13 minutes per game, like you said, sheltered, but he was also a teenager. So I guess that makes sense. And it sounds like you're saying he is the plan for the future. And it's, and it's very interesting, your answer. Like, I've never really thought of it as like, you want to have a good defensive defenseman quarterback in the power play if you have the type of person like Barzal who maybe will t- be taking some risks. So, okay, maybe that explains why <laughs> the Islanders put Letty there. And uh, poor Ryan Pulak, I guess uh, we'll just hope for him to, he seems like he's still going to be capable, like 40, 45 points. And then maybe one day he'll get the chance. Exactly. Uh, or maybe not, because Noah Dobson's only 20. Uh, I guess since we're talking about prospects, uh, one guy I've got to ask about is Oliver Wallstrom, the other first-round pick from 2018. Uh, he got his first season in the pros this year. He played 45 games with Bridgeport, and he had 22 points, and then he played nine games for the Islanders. No points there. Uh, do you think that Wallstrom is looking good and he's going to contend for a spot on the team next season? And if he does, like, it's hard to imagine like him breaking to a meaningful role just because you know we've talked about a bunch of wingers like Eberle, Lee, there's Josh Bailey, Bovillier. Though if Bovillier goes to the third line, maybe there's a spot. So like, what, what do you think the plan is for Wallstrom short term? You know, I, I it's funny when you say twenty, you know, twenty, uh, whatever, a half point a game pace in the AHL. It doesn't scream NHL superstar, but that Bridgeport team was so scoring deprived that uh, I think I think twenty two points was maybe fourth or fifth on their team in scoring. So um, I think he's a guy that they obviously they like a lot. He's got the he's got the ability to, to create his own shot and create his own offense. He's a big kid. And when he came up, even, even though he didn't produce those first few games that he played in the NHL, he didn't look out of place. And that was early on uh, during their 17 game point streak when he came up uh, that they kind of wanted to see a little bit of what he could do. And um, I think everybody was really pleased with what he brought to the table and kind of as we were saying, you know, there's there's a crying need for a winger like him who who loves to shoot the puck and and can, you know, gets into traffic and, um, you know, plays a physical style, but also has the wheels to be able to kind of create off the rush. Um, you know, he he has a unique enough skill set that if he has a decent training camp next year, uh, he could contend for a spot. And I think there's also just the the simple you know financial factor if. If they're, you know, their their salary cap stays at whatever eighty one point five million, or even goes down, um, the Islanders already have seventy million in commitments for next year, and that's without the Matthew Barzell contract, without a Ryan Pollock contract, without a Devon Taves contract. So they got to shed some salary, and even shedding some salary, they've got to have some entry level guys or some cheaper guys taking up roles. And I think Wallstrom is really, as far as the forwards, it's really him and. Kiefer Bellows, another first-round pick from a few years ago, who uh, 
who had 22 goals in Bridgeport this past season and kind of was this real breakout year in a second pro season. Those are the two guys that you really look at and say, one of those two guys has to have a spot. And normally you would say, okay, well, if he has one of those guys gets a spot, he's probably going to play on the third line. And the third line is not a place for a scoring winger. However, if your center is JG Pajot, all of a sudden, maybe you do have an, an ability to, to put the puck in the net or at least have some offensive opportunities because you have a skilled guy that you're playing with. And that's where their, their depth at center really, um, you know, maybe can kind of pull up the rope a little bit with some of these young wingers where, uh, you know, when he came up, Wallstrom this past season, he was playing a little bit with Derek Broussard. I think he played with Cole Bardro for a little bit, who was a journeyman AHLer who also been called up because of injuries. Uh, he just wasn't in a position to to produce offense. I think they wanted to. You want to be able to see what he can do away from the puck and all those other things about developing young players. But but really, uh, you know, the best situation that that one of those young guys could be in is playing alongside one of the four. Islander centers, even playing with a guy like Casey Zizekas, who's got, you know, what, 30 goals the last year plus. So, um, you know, you sort of, when you think about it that way, you sort of see Lou Lamorello's master plan at work that if you have a really deep, talented group of centers, then you can maybe get some of your wingers that, that aren't quite as ready as you'd like them to be, make them a little bit more ready. And I think Wallstrom and Bellows are really the, the two guys that you look at and say, if they're going to get younger and cheaper uh, up front and still have the scoring threat, one of those guys has to break through. And and Wallstrom really has the higher ceiling. I think they they're pretty they're pretty excited about him. Uh, but he's obviously a couple of years younger, a little bit more green. So we'll see what training camp brings uh, next season. Whenever training camp rolls around for next season, but uh, but it'll be interesting. And, I, and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if Wallstrom made that team out of camp next year. Well, well, yeah, it sounds like they are going to be almost forced to give him every opportunity they can to succeed. So that's great for him. Uh, Obviously, we have some listeners who love hearing about prospects and, you know, you've already given us so much time, but I encourage people to go check out Arthur's work at The Athletics. I saw you just recently dropped a couple of articles evaluating a bunch of prospects in the Islanders system so people could get to those. But there is one more prospect I have to ask you about before I let you go. And that's in net. Uh, you can't talk about Islanders prospects without talking about KHL standout Ilya Sorokin, who's expected to finally come to North America next season after dominating the KHL. Over, I'm seeing over the past five seasons, he's never had a save percentage below 929 in the KHL. So he's been outstanding there. And interestingly, Sorokin comes at a time where Tomas Grice is set to be an unrestricted free agent this summer after his five years with the Islanders. So is the plan, especially if they're a bit uh, cap strapped, like is the plan as simple as the Islanders will let Grice walk and have Sorokin join the big club next year to back up Barlamov? Or do you think they're going to try to get Grice to re-up for another season or to like get someone similar to him, you know, similar to what the Bruins got with Halak so Sorokin could get a year of experience in the AHL? You know, I'm I'm interested to see how that goes. you know, Sorokin, whatever, he's almost, he's going to be 25 this summer. So it's, it's so funny to talk about him as a prospect still, even though he was drafted so many years ago. Um, How old was Panarin when he won the Calder? I think <laughs> exactly. he was like 25 or something. Exactly. You know, and I think when you see uh, Sorokin's, I guess his best friend over in, from Russia is Igor Shosturkin. And so Shosturkin drafted by the Rangers came over this past, you know, the beginning of the 1920 season was willing to go to the AHL for a little while and looked like, you know, the best goalie who'd ever played in that league for however many games he yeah. was down there. And they brought him up and really, you know, the Rangers uh, 
whatever the format of the playoffs, if they can get them started again in July, if the Rangers are involved, it's really only because of Igor Shesterkin, the way that he played in his, I think it was 10 or 11 starts in the NHL. He's a guy who they may get rid of Henrik Lundqvist because this guy's been so good. So I think that reinforced the idea for Lou Lamarillo and the Islanders that, that Sorokin is a guy who could be a huge difference maker for them. Uh, whether he comes over and is willing to start in the AHL. Uh, you know, I'm sure all these deals uh, with Russian players have, uh, have an escape clause if he's there for too long. But my sense is, like you said, you know, if his entry level deal, which is one going to be one year, if it has to start in 2021, which it seems like all those deals will, according to the NHL, um, you want your, you want the, you know, the cost effect to be maximized and the way you maximize it is you have them in the NHL because it's, you know, it's a million dollars rather than three or four for your second goalie. And really, you know, if this guy is even 75% as good as he's been in the KHL, he's going to be their number one before too long. And I think uh, a lot of people who've seen him play feel that way. You know, we all know that the KHL is a very different league. There's not as much offensive skill. The, the ice is bigger. Um, it's a very conservative style league, but but I think everybody can see the skill that, that Sorokin has. Um, and I think part of the reason that they have Semyon Varlamov there for so many years is, is to kind of have that bridge to Sorokin and, uh, and be a guy who can share the time. You know, it, the Islanders have been certainly in 1819, it, it was pure accident, you know, accident luck that Robin Leonard fell into their laps and, uh, and had the season that he had. But, but when you think about a guy who was nominated, was a Vezina finalist who only made 43 or 44 starts. Um, you know, splitting time is really what the Islanders' MO has been about. And I think, uh, again, when we talk about Barry Trotz uh, being a forward-thinking guy, I think they understand that the days of, of goalies making 55, 60 starts are over. Um, so, I, you know, I, you can certainly see Sorokin coming in next season and whether they need to or not, uh, making him one of the two goalies that they keep. They have very little organizational depth outside of him. There's not any young guys that are going to be pushing for a spot. Um, so trying to committing to Thomas Grice when he's proven himself over these last five years to be a reliable 1B type guy, there's going to be a lot of teams, I think, that are interested in Grice at a, at a reasonable number. Um, so, yeah, I, I see Sorokin being in the NHL next season. I, you know, it, the, the pandemic has really thrown a lot of teams' cautious plans into, into flux. And, and I'm sure even Lou Lamarillo, who's the most cautious, patient guy out there for so many years, even he has to understand that you have to adapt with the times and, and understand that the cap is going to be so tight that you have to save your money where you can. And if you can do that by giving Sorokin some NHL games right away rather than some AHL games. It's probably not the biggest sacrifice in the world. So uh, I expect to see him in the NHL next year and for a lot of years after that. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, why re-sign Grice when you've got Sorokin who, like, especially, like you said, like what we just saw was just Jorkin, like maybe Sorokin could be even close to as good and that would be amazing. Uh, So Arthur, uh, thank you so much for giving us all of this time. Uh, I guess, okay, a final thought, then I promise I'll let you go. Uh, like uh, uh, One question we've been asking to all of our beat writers just to end the show is like, you know, since we are a fantasy podcast, just curious, if, if you wanted to give us one Islander who you expect to be like a positive surprise next season, someone who you know like people aren't expecting much from and then will really 
you know, surprise us. And then on the other side, like someone who maybe will be like a, someone we should watch out for as a potential disappointment for next season, someone that we're high on and then might not produce up to that level. What, what would be your guesses for two names there? I mean, I would probably go with Brock Nelson just because, you know, I don't, he's certainly not going to be your, you know, a guy you take in the first few rounds, but as a, I think he's risen to the level in terms of dependability where he's going to be a 25, 29, 30 goal guy, a 55, 60 point guy. Um, you know, like just you pointing out how few power play points he's had this, this season and still able to produce um, the way that he's been able to produce. I think that's the hallmark of a guy who's kind of hit his stride and knows his role. Um, and it's not going to change very much going forward in the next few years. So he's probably a guy uh, in terms of a depth draft pick I would, I would want on my fantasy team. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think Anders Lee is a guy whose who's stock for me is, is kind of at a level now where um, you don't always see those big power forward type wingers who park themselves in front of the net. They don't, they don't get fresher and more, yeah. more uh, feel more free as they get older. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think people have to adjust their expectations on him. And, and as we said, if there's, if there's a, a spot that they're looking to improve uh, offensively, it's probably at that number one left wing, which would kind of bump him down in terms of, uh, in terms of ice time. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think he's still going to be a reliable 20 goal guy and maybe he can get up to 30 again uh, if they, if they have a little bit more skill in their top six. But, but generally speaking, I think he's going to be more uh, a more consistent 20, 25 goal scorer from here on out. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially on a team that keeps the puck out of the net the way the Islanders do. But, uh, but I think for fantasy purposes, people might have to adjust their expectations on him. Yeah, for sure. It actually uh, reminds me of your colleague, Sean Shapiro, when we were talking about the Dallas Stars. I believe his answer to this was Jamie Benn, who's a similar like power yeah. forward in his 30s now. And yeah, like you say, I guess they don't age as gracefully as maybe some other players in terms of their career arcs. Uh, so yeah, once again, Arthur, thank you so much for joining us for the show. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug or get our listeners to check out aside from obviously at Stape? athletic on twitter and then you have all these great articles on the athletic is there anything else you want to let people know about no that's all uh you know the throughout the whole uh hiatus we've been still seeing our readership numbers do really well and it's been a you know for all of the mental stress that everybody's going through it's been a it's been fun to interact with islander fans and some new fans and some new readers who have been checking out our stuff and um, the creativity of a lot of my colleagues never ceases to amaze me. The stuff that we're constantly trying to come up with uh, to carry everybody through till the time when there's hockey again. So I hope everybody continues to check it out. And thanks for reading and thanks for following on Twitter. Thanks so much again and have a great rest of your night. Thanks a lot, Elon. I really appreciate it. All right. How about that? We basically covered this entire team. We learned that the Islanders had some injuries in Pelex, Zizekas, Clutterbuck, Hickey. This reminds me of my Dallas interview where I learned about this FCC line. All these non-fantasy relevant players that actually have big impacts on their teams. Who would have known? I should probably know. I'll get better. I'm learning lessons as well in this great 31 Beat Writers series. But yeah, thanks so much again, Arthur Staple. Really enjoyed that interview. A couple quick things I'll mention at the tail end of the show. Uh, We hope that you've been enjoying this 31 Beat Writers series. We're plugging along. We've got more scheduled for next week and the following week. And hopefully we're going to get an interview with every single beat writer from around the league. 
one per team, of course, not every single beat writer. Uh, if you've been liking these series of episodes, we'd love to hear from you at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. If you have any feedback, something you'd like me to change, uh, we still have time. So again, at Keeping Carlson. And if you'd like to support the show in any way, uh, we do have our Patreon program. Thank you so much to all of our current patrons of Keeping Carlson, including the seven that joined me for a really fun auction draft on Saturday night. We uh, were drafting for the 16-17 season. I think I may have overspent on Alec Martinez and Milan Lucic. Their numbers are pretty good, but I think I could have waited on those guys, and I ended up not winning. Uh, Congratulations to Mason for pulling out the win. Uh, If you want to get in on crazy fun like that and other stuff uh, in our patron community, like on our Facebook group, check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. We're just only a buck. Basically, you pay what you want, and we're going to give you all of our perks over at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But okay, with that, let's cue the outro music, and I'm going to go ahead and read the credits for this show. Uh, So Keeping Carlson is presented by Dapper Hockey, supported by our patrons. Logos are by Brandon Weave, the outro music by the great Pat Roach, and this episode was researched with help from Dapper Hockey's Frozen Tools, a little bit of Wikipedia, Hockey Reference, and mostly... Arthur Staple and his bounty of expertise knowing all about what's going on with the New York Islanders. And so I guess I should say The Athletic is another research source for this show. But okay, enough rambling from me. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Hope you liked it. We'll be back at you soon with another Beat Writer interview. And until then, don't forget to keep on keeping Carl Sahn.